Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. Dr. Charles Molmer is the Chief of GI Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania and Director of Pancreatic Surgery. He's a repeat guest of the show, and we were lucky enough to have him do another masterclass for Cold Steel, this time on cystic neoplasms of the pancreas. In part one of this masterclass, Dr. Volmer gives us an overview of cystic lesions of the pancreas, as well as their diagnosis. Make sure to check out part two as well, where Dr. Volmer specifically focuses on IPMNs. We're thrilled to have you give us a masterclass today on, on something I think that probably a lot of trainees all the way into faculty of varying specialties think of um, maybe as not overly exciting, but the reality is that pancreatic cystic disease, cystic neoplasms and so on are increasingly common. I think we all know this based on the imaging that we have, um, the incidental findings that have really skyrocketed with that use of imaging. I know we're going to get into IPMN specifically, um, a diagnosis that's been around for about 40 years. And certainly as we generate a better understanding of that disease, things get a little bit easier. But I was wondering for the trainees, if you could frame for us how you initially look at a patient with a pancreatic cystic lesion. They show up in your clinic um, how, how do you think of that patient? How do you work that patient out? How do you approach that patient? Yeah. Okay. So let me uh, take a step back to the first part of what you're talking about. And that was the historical arc of, of this. And um, I'd like to say that actually it is exciting uh, for those of us in the field, the advent of this cystic uh, process in my career, 20 some years now, 30, if you include the training. This has been, I've been living right in the takeoff of this uh, process. Now, it used to be that pancreatic surgery was reserved just for cancer. And it was actually, there was a point in time when it was thought to be heretical to be doing pancreatectomies with their bad outcomes uh, for anything beyond uh, the most dire um, issue of uh, pancreas cancer. And it was basically, I guess, John Cameron at Hopkins, who was really the four runner of that, starting to, to show some papers of advancing the indications for it along the way. Um, when I started out in the field, there you would have thought a pancreatic surgeon or an HPV surgeon, a pancreatic surgeon specifically, would basically only be dealing with two disease processes, cancer and pancreatitis. Um, it turns out that as I matured into my career, my actual attending career, that this whole element came into the drama. And uh, it's something uh, that's somewhat newish since the, the diagnosis of IPMN was really only founded about 1982. Uh, but I now refer to this as being like the third pillar of a, a pancreatic surgical practice is the cystic disease element to it. It's actually quite voluminous in terms of name, numbers of uh, patients that you get. And I also have a, a slide in a lot of my uh, talks on this that is a Venn diagram, and it puts those three things together, cancer, inflammation, and um, cysts. 
and puts them all together because there's overlap between all three of those in what the pathologies cause or present as. So it's actually been uh, an infusion of intellectual energy to our field uh, in the midst of my career. Uh, and I've actually embraced it as being sort of maybe even more primary to me than the pancreas cancer, at least probably here at Penn, I'm more known for the cyst element of uh, uh, things than pancreatic cancer surgery. Um, so it's an interesting thing, guys, because I asked, I've asked some of the forefathers in the field, uh, what were you doing back in 1980 with this? Were you doing resections for cysts and the likes? And it was interesting because they said, no, not really. And it's, it's very hard for us to fathom that a new disease just sort of popped up uh, in the midst of 20 or 30 years out of nowhere, right? Like this had to have been going on back in the time. What they didn't have is the imaging elements that were so prevalent, uh, bringing understanding of it. And they also firmly believed back in that time, like when I was a student, it was said that 90% of the cysts in the pancreas plus are going to be from pancreatitis and they're going to be pseudocysts from, from pancreatitis. And I think we've now turned that, that that's been disproven and turned that um, around. Um, so I asked them like, certainly this disease was going on. Didn't you do resections for this? And, and the old timers, they, they basically don't have uh, any insight on that. Like they, they don't remember doing it. Now it turns out that these cystic things ultimately first came to light in the 1990s through symptomatic problems. And so we were dealing with a lot of gross disease stuff with, with that, like um, advanced stuff because it got to the point where it was uh, symptomatic. And then about the year 2000 on, uh, the uh, ubiquitousness of CAT scans and MRIs and axial imaging, and then also ultrasound made this, um, as we, as I think you brought up the term incidentaloma uh, era uh, was ushered in. And the nature of how we see these things and understood them is, has changed a whole lot. So now I'll get on to your, your, your question, and that's, you know, how do you size these things up? Well, um, you're not necessarily born with cysts in the pancreas. It's really rare to be born with something. So these are generally acquired issues. So if a cyst is found in the pancreas, it's not supposed to be there, and you've got to be curious about it. The problem is that so many people in the medical field um, don't have insight to what this is, and anything pancreatic gets very charged up and is scary to not just the patients, but also a lot of practice. So you get these cysts uh, in the pancreas or a lesion in the pancreas that's found, and people really you know, freak out. Well, it's not supposed to be there. So it's incumbent upon us then to decipher what's going on with that. And the way I think about it is they can be good, bad, or ugly. And you got to sort of get to the, to the base of it. One of the cardinal principles here is you have to have a framework in your head of what the possibilities are and the, the, the scope of what these cysts are and how they behave biologically. 
and I, like we could detail that here in this talk if you wanted, but uh, essentially, as I approach the the thing, I've got this sort of algorithm slide in my mind, and I, I go from A to B to C to D along the nidus points to figure out where we stand. Um, radiography is so key to it. We could take a step back and say the HMP matters. Okay, so there definitely is symptomatology that can come from these things. And it's usually in the order of it's causing jaundice, which is obvious. It's causing overt pancreatitis, sometimes some exocrine insufficiency, steatorrhea presentations uh, can come from it. And sometimes early satiety or weight loss because of a giant space filling cystic lesion in the area. So those are the kind of things that you can kind of hunt or glean from the HMP, but it's all about the pictures. And now, because since 2000 on, everyone's getting a picture for anything. You go to the emergency room, you're going to likely get some sort of imaging. Now it's just basically been thrust on us. Oh, we found this. The patient's not symptomatic, but here it is. And uh, I think that's a, a good takeoff for your, your uh, kind of broad question there as to how I look at it. It's, it's a matter of putting those things together. I think another thing you want to understand as you get into this is chronicity of it. So is it direct um, only at the time that you're seeing things or has there been a history or pre prelude to it? So we always try to understand if there's been imaging pr prior to that. Could have been three years ago, seven years ago, or 10 years ago. Did you have a car crash and you got worked up and you had a CAT scan back at that point in time that we could refer to? Because you would kind of like to see, was it there at that point in your life? And did it, is it here now out of nowhere? Or has this been something that you had, you know, brewing in you for a long time and it's getting, you know, um, it's changed a little bit over time. So I always ask to get that sort of, can you get us your radiographic history uh, behind that? Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful approach. You know, I think the reality that we all know is that if these patients come to the emergency department to a referral to a general surgeon, for example, usually that ends up in a, in a CAT scan type referral. Mm -hmm. If they come through a family doctor's office, then oftentimes it's maybe an ultrasound that led to the CAT scan, for example. Yep. What, what, what do you, how do you see the radiologic workup of these patients? So yeah. where does MRCP fit in? Where does EUS fit in? Where does CT fit in? Okay. So um, actually the most common way they're referred to us, if you want to look at the, the numbers, is through the GU track. So hematuria and or uh, kidney workups. Sounds and then ramp that up to the CAT scan kind of thing. The second thing would be gynoc or gy gynecology-based assessments where an ultrasound is put on the abdomen uh, down low, but then they start looking around because they can, right? So those are our two most fertile grounds on that kind of stuff. You can also get this stuff through cancer surveillance screening processes. So oncologists will encounter this because they're getting their preferred scanning kind of things. And sort of the last thing would be the quote unquote executive workup 
executive health uh, workup screening kind of thing where someone uh, is worried and or their insurance company allows them to go get screened uh, to assure that they don't have anything going on, right? So these are sort of our portals of entry. And we can get any of those um, uh, imaging things or all of them at one time. What you need to know about the cystic process is that the workhorse for this, the best thing is MRI. And uh, the purpose, of, the reason is that you want to be looking at the plumbing system of the pancreas uh, through this. And how do you do that? Well, MRI is the best thing to look at the ductal elements. And it relies on basically uh, the fact that uh, on a T2 image, you're assessing standing fluid or non-pulsatile uh, fluid. So if you wanna look at uh, the plumbing system of the body, you're using the MRI. So uh, the cyst elements, we can get into the nature of this a little bit down the line in the talk here, but it's basically the epicenter of the problem is going to be in the tube of the ductal system of the pancreas. And MRI outline that the best for you. CT scan should be thought of as being more for parenchymal elements. You will be able to understand things about cystic lesions and duct dilations and stuff with CT scans, but they will be on a grosser level and probably reliant on that cyst being a little bit more advanced, bigger, or more biologically involved with things. So I tend to, if someone comes with a CAT scan, um, I tend to get an MRI as a immediately at the outset as a baseline to go off of that because most of the screening will go off of, of that. There will be people who can't get MRIs, but even that's in today's world changing to the point where, you know, pacemakers can be, you can have it. Um, people with claustrophobia can be dealt with. There's open MRIs. I actually saw something the other day. There's actually an upright MRI. You sit in a chair and you can get that done. So we're sort of getting away from all those disqualifiers. And if uh, so I would urge you, if you can do that, you can do that. Now, ultrasound in general, an abdominal, transabdominal ultrasound is a easy, quick, efficient way to kind of peer at the pancreas. Um, it's kind of like getting a chest x-ray of the chest. It kind of tells you a little bit, gets some basics for you, but it's not gonna be as well detailed. And of course, looking at the pancreas through bowel and such, it's often obscured and you can't get a good full look at it. But there's definitely times when an ultrasound looking at a gallbladder and they sort of peek over, oh, I found something ahead of the pancreas too. So that's sort of your entree level of kind of thing. But then you brought up the idea of an EUS. So that would be where um, you pair um, the ultrasound imaging with procedural process can actually biopsy or access the cyst. And that will be done by a gastroenterologist. Um, there's a whole lot to say about that. So you could think of that as being your best way to target the biological nature of the cyst. Um, heretofore, we just talked about radiology. And I can tell you for the vast majority of all these people that we deal with, we can totally rely on radiology because the numbers and the odds and the features that we see on that are very, very clear cut now, okay? But that's not the case for every, every case. So the best way to go to the target lesion itself is to go uh, down through the stomach 
Um, and essentially you understand the stomach sits right in front of the, the corpus of the pancreas. So you can look right through onto it most directly. And then you have the ability to access the fluid within, which is going to tell you more of the biology of it. Uh, there are some caveats to that. Okay. So it's more invasive. There are definitely side effects that can happen. Um, they'll quote you a one to 2% risk. It's probably a little bit higher than that, but it's not, you know, out, outstanding risk, but things can happen. And I have absolutely seen people in my career whose um, pancreases have been blown up by getting pancreatitis from an FNA biopsy to the point where uh, it distorts the, the gland itself and you don't even know where the cyst is anymore. Uh, and you can't even surveil it over time. And sometimes you get to a point where it's so bad that you can't even operate, or at least you have to delay any operative intervention from it. So you got to be a little bit leery of the complication uh, process to it. And the second thing is you can't biopsy all cysts. And we can get into this later nature of what we're finding, but there is a full spectrum of size and morphology of these cysts. And um, it, the general rule is to get anything out of a cyst, it needs to be about one centimeter in size or equivalent of one cc of fluid so the concept that all these trivial ditzel kind of cysts or things of one centimeter below are um uh important or valid etc that you need to go uh, put a needle into that that's really probably overdoing things and the, the other thing i'll tell you is your fidelity of your biopsy is going to be based on your size as well you start poking one centimeter cysts um, I believe that there's going to be a larger, um, false negative, false positive process from that than when you have the larger two, three centimeter cysts, or in essence, the cysts that are actually more biologically relevant for the, for the concern. Okay. So I, I do worry about, um, over aggression. And this is an interesting thing because we're going to talk to a general audience here. It really kind of depends whose hands you fall into as the consultant, as, as a patient, what kind of consultant uh, you're encountering uh, initially. Um, a gastroenterologist is likely going to be more aggressive and do what they do, okay? A surgeon, likewise, can be more aggressive and do what they do, but we also know that our aggression is really extreme. So I think we, we have a little bit more measure on like, hey, we're, when we take someone to the operating room, but a gastroenterologist uh, is likely going to apply that technology because it's their skill set and they make a living off of it. And it's um, their culture is ingrained. That's, um, but you know, we, the, the same person could go to a surgeon and they'd look at it and say, um, I can pretty much figure this out by the radiology and by the history and physical, and it's not really a big threat in my mind. So I don't really feel the need to go do that sampling at this point in time. So definitely in our own um, cyst clinic group here, we definitely have different approaches uh, and not to say that one's better or worse. It's just the fact on that. Okay. I personally resolve or um, leave the endoscopic ultrasound aspect for 
more advanced cases that are going to help me make a choice to go to the operating room or not. Okay. So um, I want, if I want to know what the, the pay dirt is, what is going on inside that cyst biologically at the cellular level, then I'll invoke, invoke a EUS uh, approach. And I will generally use that because it needs to be an additive layer of qualification to help me make the determination to go to the operating room. That's that. Yeah, I think that's perfectly said, right? We, I think we all use EUS in that way that it, it's an additive test when you're when it may tip you one way or the other way, i.e. into the operation or, or out of it. So um, you've triggered your EUS on this given patient and you get back a report that has a number of different values, glucose, <laughs> amylase lipase, cytology, uh, perhaps a CEA level, maybe even a CA-99 level. Yep. Okay, for, our, for our audience, can you break down those four or five sure. elements and what they mean to you? Yeah. So that's, I was about to go into that and that's exactly, so you've got two purposes or two ideas of what a, a, bio, a cytology FNA can yield you. And it depends on and this is why I'm saying like, you have to be selective. The smaller cyst, you're not going to get a lot of fluid back. Sometimes you're going to be forced to choose between the two thought processes. So one is what is the biology that I'm dealing with? Can we use that cyst fluid to um, give an additive insight to on top of the radiology as to what the discrete category of the cyst is? The second would be, can I get to the aggressiveness and the worry element of this cyst? i.e. is this cancer or in the pre-cancer element at some or dysplasia zone at some point. Sometimes you have to choose between one or the other. You can only get a CC off. You can't send them for both. And you have to be sort of um, judicious about what you're uh, looking for and what you're asking. Now, let's start with the biochemistry. This is a, to determine what kind of cyst it is. So um, you're basically pulling the fluid off, all right? The other thing you should understand about cysts is people worry about the size of cysts, okay? And, and they're like, oh my God, it's a four centimeter cyst. Well, you know, a four centimeter pancreatic mass is almost unheard of, okay? So people freak out like, oh my God, it's four centimeters, right? You should just think of like that four centimeters is not necessarily a proliferation of millions of cells like a solid mass is. That size is a fluid sac. It's basically a bunch of fluid. Yes, you could argue that there's surface area of the neoplastic or disease process that is added there, but you shouldn't get so worried up about like a, um, a large cyst or the a, a size of the cyst changing so much is so, you know, red alert, red alert kind of thing. Well, let's get back to the fluid. There's a number of things you can get out of it. So first of all, since it's in the duct system, putatively, the cyst should have amylase in it, okay? Now, if it's truly connected to the whole pipe system, it will have amylase because that's what the, the glandular elements are producing, okay? There are a few types of cysts that are trapped unilocular things that are not part of the pancreatic duct system. And this is where that differentiation helps you, okay? So 
an amylase would indicate connection to the pancreatic duct system, you're going down the line of pseudocyst or IPMN with that thought process. If the amylase is not in that, it could be more on the lines of a mucinous cyst adenoma, which is just a singular trapped um, cystic cavity within the pancreatic parenchyma, but not fueled by the duct system. Okay. So that helps you with that kind of distinction there. Um, glucose, I don't find a lot for that necessarily, but I think that that is one of the new, newer frontiers, um, that that's going to be um, a marker that is going to uh, help you understand more about aggressiveness of a neoplastic lesion. Uh, so I say future attractions there, but not yet um, proven. Uh, this was all figured out, I guess, in the late 90s. Bill Brugge at MGH was the guy who really sort of pioneered this. And the, and the landmark paper was from them. I think it was a New England Journal paper, actually, if I recall. Um, that basically, like, they sucked all these, the, the fluid out, and they just looked at all these biomarkers along the way. And what, what did they find out? Well, the key finding was that CEA, carcinoembryonic antigen, was elevated. Uh, if that elevated, it was trouble. Um, now that is CEA, the same as what you draw for colon cancer uh, survivorship uh, or analysis from the blood. But, and you always have to make this very clear to your practitioners as well as your uh, patients that we are not talking about that. And we are not talking about this being a tumor marker for uh, colon cancer. This is a specific um, look at pancreatic juice. All right. So you get that and that's elevated. The threshold is somewhere around 180 to 200. If you're above that, this does not mean you have cancer. And this is the, the fallacy. This is actually an abscite question that's been known to happen for the surgical residents. But it's also the most common misconception by any of the practitioners you deal with, oncologists in particular, and the primary care doctors. Oh, the CEA tumor marker is high. This must mean it means cancer. It does not. What it means instead in this case is that you are talking about a cyst in the mucinous family. And that basically means IPMN or mucinous cyst adenoma, or possibly the non, the very rare non-dysplastic mucinous um, uh, lesion, which is really benign. Um, so that is, that's the big thing you need to know. So you get a CEA that's up and again, 180, 200 is your, your threshold. However, there's also data that takes that down lower. So if it's actually like present, I've seen cases of IPMN where the, that level's 50 or something like that. And it's clearly IPMN or we can show by diagnosis or, or pathology too. So there's, you know, there's a, a spectrum for what that number could be, but that's up, that's an indicator. Um, and, and I think that's the big thing to say about the gas is that you've just got to understand it is not a cancer diagnosis by using that. Now, the other thing would be um, glucose, uh, or I'm sorry, there's some, some added uh, extra uh, cellular kind of biochemical things you can get. Uh, it's, it escapes the top of my head right now, but there is something that's a little bit more specific for serous cyst adenomas um, and uh, the serous, which is a benign condition. And if uh, that is elevated, then um, that gives you a little bit more 
comfort that you're dealing with this uh, lesion that's benign and probably doesn't even need to be followed thereafter. Very interestingly, you can make some comparisons with what we're dealing with in the pancreas here to the ovarian cystic lesions that all surgical residents had to remember, but they never really deal with anymore. Uh, we had to do it for our board test and understand the differences of, of the ovarian cysts and how you treat them in the operating room. Well, here you have the same thing. You have the differentiation between serous and mucinous lesions. The mucinous stuff is bad. Okay. That is pre-malignant and has the uh, malignant potential. The serous generally does not. Okay. And so you have these same components in the, uh, as cystic lesions in the pancreas. And this is one of your differentiating points in the biology. The last thing about the aspiration, if you go down the other course, or maybe you're lucky and you got enough fluid, you can do both at the same time. Um, you then can look at the cytology elements. One thing before I get to that though, is another finding that you can have when you're, they're doing the EUS is they're gonna pull this fluid back through the scope and they're gonna see a string sign on it in some cases. And it's just very obviously viscous. So it's called the string sign. And essentially that you could know even before you get any you know, biochemical numbers back to you from your visual on it. Now let's go to the cytology element. This is where it gets very vexing. And this is where my point before about maybe overuse of EUS is a problem. Um, what you're looking for is to get exfoliated cells um, that are just sort of floating around that are, that are indicative of what's in the neighborhood, okay? Um, you're never gonna get, the best thing is a, is a final pathology where the whole tissue and the architecture of the neighborhood is visible to the pathologist and they can put it all together. But essentially you're getting a glimpse to it by just getting these cells out and having a cytologist look at them. You need to remember that that is an art form. Uh, cytopathology is an art form of a field and uh, it's in the eye of the beholder and there's certain skill levels and you have to have trust in who you work with on that kind of stuff. There's absolutely false positives and false negatives. Essentially, you want to know where in the spectrum of uh, disease it does this fall. Benign, um, uh, dysplastic in some way, or cancer in terms of overt cancer or even invasiveness if they could go that far. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.